Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossin. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Fever, where we'll discuss the newly released guidelines for surviving sepsis. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. In November 2021, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign published the International Guidelines for Management of Sepsis and Septic Shock 2021, simultaneously in the journals Critical Care Medicine and Intensive Care Medicine. Now, this is of special interest to me as I cover sepsis when I present at the Queensland Fellowship Exam course, and they've made a couple of changes from 2016 which are highly relevant. In addition, as anaesthetists, we often look after patients with sepsis. It's a common reason for needing an operation, and we may even see patients early in their journey with sepsis who require acute care or resuscitation. Therefore, we think these guidelines are super relevant to our practice. The other thing to note is that these guidelines are long. Mm. They are 81 pages covering 93 recommendations. Mm. So we will not be covering all the content comprehensively today. (laughs) However, we will pick out the big ticket items plus anything relevant that's changed significantly from 2016, which is when many of us probably last looked at these guidelines in detail. So let's get started. Now, pleasingly, one thing that hasn't changed is the definition of sepsis. Hurrah! Huzzah! Sepsis is life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. It cannot be overstated what a huge burden of disease is caused by sepsis on a global scale. The mortality of sepsis is still high. Between one in three and one in six people who get it will die of it, despite the ongoing efforts of critical care societies around the world. We're now going to run through some of the recommendations and the rationale behind them. We're going to start with recommendation number two, which states, we recommend against using the QSOFA compared with SIRS, NEWS or MUSE as a single screening tool for sepsis or septic shock, rated as, as strong with moderate quality evidence. So this is an interesting one for me because back in 2016, the previous version of these guidelines recommended the QSOFA score. The QSOFA uses three variables to predict death and ICU stay in patients with known or suspected sepsis, those being a GCS under 15, a respiratory rate over or equal to 22 breaths per minute, and a systolic blood pressure equal to or under 100 millilitres of mercury. If two of these variables are present simultaneously, the patient is considered to be QSOFA positive. Since 2016, presumably prompted by the guidelines, several studies have investigated the use of the QSOFA as a screening tool for sepsis with contradictory results. I quote the guideline, neither SIRS nor QSOFA are ideal screening tools for sepsis and the bedside clinician needs to understand the limitations of each. That's fair enough. Now, given its poor sensitivity, the panel issued a strong recommendation against its use as a single screening tool. Unfortunately, there is no strong recommendation within the guideline as to what predictive scores to use or how to use them optimally. What about the vibe? (laughs) (laughs) 
it's Marbo, it's the vibe. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, we should make light of sepsis and we're not. We, we, you know, but it's, it's just interesting, isn't it, that we still haven't come up with a really great kind yeah. of quick predictive tool and ultimately you have to use um, a combination of, of sort of more scientifically backed scores along with with your gut. Clinical Clinical, gut, yeah, yeah, clinical you know, judgment, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Recommendation three states that for adults suspected of having sepsis, the authors suggest measuring blood lactate. This is also recommended in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign one-hour bundle and the association of lactate level with mortality is well established. Based on several pieces of evidence, the authors have issued a weak recommendation favouring the use of serum lactate as an adjunctive test to modify the pre-test probability of sepsis in patients with suspected but not confirmed sepsis. The next few recommendations cover initial resuscitation. Firstly, recommendation four states that sepsis and septic shock are medical emergencies and they recommend that treatment and resuscitation commence immediately. Recommendation five suggests the administration of 30 mils per kilo of crystalloid intravenous fluid within three hours of patients with sepsis-induced hypoperfusion or septic shock. Recommendation six suggests using dynamic measures to guide fluid resuscitation over physical examination or static parameters alone. And these include responses to a passive leg raise or fluid bolus, using stroke volume, stroke volume variation, pulse pressure variation, or echocardiography. Recommendation seven suggests guiding resuscitation to decrease serum lactate in patients with elevated lactate level over not using serum lactate. And recommendation eight states that for adults with septic shock, the authors recommend using capillary refill time to guide resuscitation as an adjunct to other measures of perfusion. So I think overall, it seems pretty instinctive and common sense to me. Mm. If you're interested in taking a deeper dive into the evidence underpinning these recommendations, then we'll link the guidelines in our show notes. However, I will state that the evidence for these initial resuscitation guidelines is mostly low quality. The authors really emphasise frequent reassessment of a patient's clinical state in a holistic fashion and making decisions regarding fluid resuscitation based upon this. Uh, Kate, what are your thoughts? Look, I think that sounds like a really sensible approach to what is actually quite a dynamically changing clinical picture. So it makes perfect sense to me. Um, the other thing that I really like with, you know, within the guidelines that we've previously talked about is that they really hone in that it's not just about assessment scores, mm. um, because I think often we can lose sight of the big picture and forget that, you know, we're not assessing a patient that's septic. We're just getting this sort of dimensionless score that's supposed to you know, and that's one of the that's one of the problems that I have as a clinician who often you know I may get a phone call from a nurse on the ward saying this patient has a muse of eight. You need to come and see them. It's like, well, what does that mean? Mm. You know. So I actually really like that they're incorporating clinical judgment and actually looking at the patient, assessing them properly when it comes to deciding on, you know, the implementation of therapies and and ongoing management mm. and I love the idea that we have to keep continually keep assessing yep. these patients it just makes perfect sense to me yep. in you it's know best practice I absolutely think. Mm. now with regards to mean arterial pressure or map for adults with septic shock on vasopressors in point nine the authors recommend an initial target map of 65 millimeters of mercury over higher map targets the authors also recommend that patients who require admission to intensive care have this occur within six hours, as this may result in better outcomes. The other very important recommendation is with regards to the timing of administration of antibiotics. Recommendation 12 states that for adults with possible septic shock or a high likelihood for sepsis, the authors recommend administering antimicrobials immediately, ideally within one hour of recognition. They state that the delivery of antimicrobials in sepsis should be considered as an emergency. 
the mortality reduction associated with early antimicrobials seems to be the strongest in patients with septic shock, and this is backed up with several large observational studies. There is a good graphic on page 18 of the guidelines which shows a suggested treatment algorithm with regards to antibiotics. For patients in whom shock is absent and sepsis is possible as opposed to definite or probable, the suggestion is for rapid assessment of infectious versus non-infectious causes of acute illness and then to administer antimicrobials within three hours if concern for infection persists. For those in our audience who are interested in the specifics regarding antimicrobials, antifungals and antivirals, there are several recommendations in the guidelines that delve into the detail. We won't cover them here today. We're going to move on to source control. Recommendation 27 in the form of a best practice statement says, for adults with sepsis or septic shock, we recommend prompt removal of intravascular access devices that are a possible source of sepsis or septic shock after other vascular access has been established. And look, to be honest, this seems pretty logical. I agree. We're going to move on to fluid management. In summary, the recommendations suggest using balanced crystalloids as the first line fluid for resuscitation instead of normal saline. They also recommend using albumin in patients who received large volumes of crystalloids over using crystalloids, as well as avoiding starches and gelatin for resuscitation. Now, this is interesting because traditionally, normal saline has been recommended as the choice of crystalloid for resuscitation in sepsis. The authors say that the recommendation for balanced crystalloid solutions is a weak one, as the quality of evidence is low, mainly based on the SMART trial, which was a single-centre study without individual patient randomization and blinding. There are two large randomised control trials ongoing in this area of interest, so hopefully some more evidence will be forthcoming. Mm, interesting. Now on to vasoactive agents. Recommendation 37 suggests noradrenaline as the first agent over other vasopressors as a strong recommendation. If noradrenaline isn't available, then adrenaline or dopamine can be used as an alternative, but if they are used, then attention should be given to patients at risk for arrhythmias. If patients have an inadequate map on noradrenaline, the suggestion is to add vasopressin rather than escalate the noradrenaline, and the authors suggest a threshold of 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. If the map is still inadequate on noradrenaline and vasopressin, the authors suggest adding adrenaline. Okay, seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. If an inotrope is required for patients with septic shock, cardiac dysfunction and persistent hyperperfusion despite adequate volume status and arterial blood pressure, then recommendation 41 suggests either adding dobutamine to noradrenaline or using adrenaline alone. Recommendation 42 suggests against using levosimendin. Mm, okay. Now, unsurprisingly, and I think consistent with widespread practice, invasive arterial blood pressure monitoring is recommended as soon as practical, and vasopressors may be given peripherally to restore MAP rather than waiting for central venous access. Peripheral vasopressors should be given in a vein in or proximal to the antecubital fossa, and only for a short period of time. Also makes sense. Mm. We'll move on to oxygenation and ventilation. The authors found insufficient evidence to make a recommendation on the use of conservative oxygen targets in adults with sepsis-induced hypoxic respiratory failure. Interestingly, for adults with sepsis-induced hypoxic respiratory failure, the authors suggest the use of high-flow nasal oxygen over non-invasive ventilation. Hmm. This makes sense as it is somewhat more simple to deliver with less complications, so a trial of high-flow seems reasonable. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? When it comes to non-invasive ventilation versus invasive ventilation, the authors have insufficient evidence to make a recommendation. The next section of the guidelines gets into the real nitty-gritty of oxygenation and ventilation, covering ventilation in ARDS, PEEP, recruitment manoeuvres and prone ventilation. If you are ICU inclined, head to the link in our show notes. 
there's a lot of stuff for the ICU peeps who, mm. who love all the nitty-gritty of ventilation mm. in them. The remainder of the document is also primarily ICU-focused, looking at additional therapies such as corticosteroids and vitamin C, DVT prophylaxis and enteral feeding, and then the long-term outcomes and goals of care as well as post-ICU follow-up. It really is an incredibly comprehensive document and well-referenced with 653 primary sources to dig into, should you wish. That's impressive. So ultimately, what do you think of these guidelines, Kate? Yeah, so as I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of retraction of the use of the QSOFA score from yeah. 2016 was interesting. And mm. now I must go and amend my presentation for the part two exam. Excellent. Good to be up to date. Um, the other interesting section to me was the recommendation to use balanced crystalloids for resuscitation. Yeah, I found that interesting too. Mm. So I'll take that one on board. And I see there's a trial in progress using plasma light versus normal saline, but I don't think we have access to plasma light where I work at the moment. Ah, so, see, we do. So mm. I'll be I'll be watching um, watching with interest. Yeah, absolutely. The authors were concerned regarding hyperchloremia and acidosis with saline. So I think during anaesthesia, we actually do have the ability to monitor monitor these things in in our sort of setting. What did you think of the guidelines? Look, to be honest, my feelings kind of mirror yours very, um, very closely. I... I did find as well the ad, the advent that QSOFA wasn't as useful as we previously thought was interesting. And to be honest, I, I think a lot of the stuff, a lot of the contents within the recommendations are things we actually do anyway. So I actually mm. found it really reassuring yeah. to know that we're, we are very much on the right track yeah. and that we are, certainly in my own practice, you know, what I'm doing for the patient is in fact best practice, which is really good. It's really good to know we're on the right track. No, mm, I agree. Uh, so that time has come again. Of what have you learned this week in anesthesia? Okay, so interestingly enough, I this week I had to come in in the middle of the night for an emergency case where as part of our initial airway management because there was a foreign body very, very high up in a patient's esophagus and the potential for it dislodging and becoming an air, acute airway issue was mm. quite high. My <laughs> wonderful trainee and I went in and we prepared ourselves. We had a difficult airway trolley, but one of the things we checked was the um, the little kits that we have created for emergency cricothyroidotomy. Mm. Mm. And interestingly enough, and this was my registrar that picked up on this, I totally didn't, we don't have the correct scalpels in our kits. Oh, really? We don't even have the correct scalpels in theatre. So you right. need that. Yeah, it's going to so, go well. Yeah, so you need the... Um, I don't know the formal name of the scalpel, but it looks like, um, you know, the profile of a sperm whale with a really big mm. head because you need to be able to do an incision and rotate the scalpel 90 degrees yeah. to splint all the tissues open so that you can then introduce the, boos- the bougie. We have really, really narrow, sharp, um, mm. pointy scalpels. And it was interesting speaking to this registrar because they had the exact same situation at another hospital that this trainee was at where they did have to do an emergency cricothyroidotomy with the wrong scalpel. And it was interesting hearing him talk because everyone consistently says that it cost them Mm. 20 seconds, 30 seconds, which when you're under the pump and Mm. you're doing phona, like that is terrifying. So I guess it's possible, but you just have to like go a bit further. It's very, very hard. Yeah, Yeah, it's very hard. It's, Mm. and you really can't splint things open as Mm. well. And yeah, the big, the big sacrifice that they made was they lost a lot of valuable time. Mm. So something that, we're actually both going to do is approach the the clinician that's in charge of equipment and just yeah. say, hey, look, this is the situation. This is probably something we should rectify before yeah. we have to. Yeah, mm, yeah. Good pick up. But it's, I'm so lucky that I was on with a trainee that's really 
airway focused and, you know, is preparing mm. for the exam. Mm. He, t- he totally picked up on it. I completely yeah. missed it. I just sort of looked for the presence of a scalpel, didn't actually look at the scalpel proper. Mm. So I'm eternally grateful that I had a wonderful training on with me. Thankfully, we didn't have to use it. <laughs> Thankfully, everything went well with the induction. But mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, mm. it's well, good, good catch. Yeah, good catch. exactly. Well, good catch for my trainee. <laughs> mm. So, Kate, what have you learned this week in anesthesia? So, maybe not this week, but a few weeks ago, I guess I just relearned like how hairy things can really get even in elective surgery. So, mm. I went to a sister colleague uh, who had a patient having abdominal surgery and the patient was bleeding quite profusely. And when I arrived, the patient's blood pressure was about 40 on 20. So, Ooh. it wasn't going great. Um, so, I think personally, like when I'm asked to – attending these situations to assist sometimes like a little bit of imposter syndrome yeah definitely um but i was able to provide some advice supported my colleague who was making very sensible decisions Mm. and also prompted that maybe we should do a bedside echo and then i went and found someone to do the echo so just kind of supported my colleague through the decision making yeah making their life a little Um, easier yeah and and, and they were perfectly capable but i suppose i just have to remember that i have acquired a skill set over my training and through my consultant years and you know this is my seventh year now as a consultant Mm. so i'm heading out of junior consultancy into that middle section and it is easy Um, to forget that isn't it it is easy to forget that you actually clock up a lot of experience in that time and you do have a skill set that's very useful in Mm. that situation Mm. and to be look if nothing else i think sometimes Times, as the primary decision maker in an emergency, it's nice to have someone just agree with your sensible decision yeah, making. So exactly. you just, you know, so that you know you're on the right just track. Make sure you haven't got any gaps or anything. Yeah, so, exactly. Yes, yeah, so I don't know whether I've mentioned it on here before, but I have been doing a bit of reading around imposter syndrome and imposter feelings recently, mm. and I think we discussed this um, in another episode. Yeah. Um, and it's all it's it's fascinating, and it's not all negative. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And mm. I think look, I think more of us experience these sorts of things than we would realize or frankly Mm. care to admit so (laughs) that's true Mm. thanks again for joining us as always you can reach us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com we love hearing all of your suggestions for future topics and possible guests to approach so please keep the emails coming you can find us on most major podcasting platforms including apple podcasts and spotify and following us makes it easier to find new episodes We'll be back in two weeks and until then, thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.